0: Come sing, pray, write new music, share testimonies and resources, and grow together with like-minded worship leaders from across the world. Go to LLIW.net to register.
1: Coming out of college, I was ready to, like, take on the world. What I liked about music was that, like, if you did it well, it would make you a somebody.
0: I didn't just
1: walk into San Francisco and and start playing big shows. I would pretty much perform anywhere I could until I got that opportunity to headline my own show at one of the bigger venues. And then as a songwriter, I was introduced into some really successful production teams. Now I was surrounded by award-winning musicians, award-winning producers, people that had plaques on their walls. It wasn't this dream anymore, it was more of the beginnings of defining the reality of it. There were like two separate things going on. One was when I was not around any of my friends anymore, when my whole environment started to shift, I really started asking the question, what what do I value? So I started really searching out some of the questions that I had. I started growing in my own relationship. Nobody there telling me like, you need to read the Bible. It was more this like, what is it for me? And then the other lane was this music. So I came to this point where it was like, for the next phase or for the next step of it, it was, put every single thing you have in front of God. So I did like a, a mental accounting. That's fine, that's fine, that's fine, that's fine. And then it, and music came up and I was like, but just don't touch that. It finally came to this head. I had this show the next day and I couldn't sleep that night. It almost felt like, like peace had been removed. I felt like I could see 10 years down the line and I asked myself, like, how did I get here? That night I knew that there was something else. Like there was an invitation to something completely different. I said, you know, I'm gonna do the show the next day, then I quit. So I, I picked up the phone, called them, told them I was going a different direction, gave back all the funding, and it was like the most peace I've experienced was in that moment. Canceling giving it back and just taking one of those deep breaths and like... <sighs> but I still didn't have a plan B. The funny thing is that nursing was this thing that kind of resonated. When I studied business, people, people were like, hey, nursing is a great profession. And I laughed at people. I was like, you would never catch me doing it. Like, you're crazy. Like, what? what is wrong with you? How, like, how dare you even? And then I'm sitting in college again, taking prerequisite science classes. And I, re- I literally would just kind of scratch my head, look around, and I'd be like, what is happening? But I knew I was supposed to be there. Especially looking back on it, it's easier to see. It was a development ground. Like, it was like a trade of like, you being served to like, you learn how to serve. So while I was in school, this new process, learning, going to school, studying, the songwriter piece to me wasn't dead. I started writing songs again, but I was literally just writing songs because songs were coming out. So I think it was this pure environment that allowed me to write music that was exactly connected to what I wanted to do. And I didn't care if anyone heard it. And then I kept writing music and and one of my friends heard it and he's like, hey, you know, I think your new music is almost better than your old stuff. So he sets up a meeting. I end up going, meeting with this guy, sharing some of the new songs. And he's like, I love it. And he signs off the Oakland Symphony to accompany me for a full concert. I remember sitting there and just saying, you know what's crazy? I've been trying to work with you for a few years and I quit music and now I'm sitting here talking to you. I remember walking through that empty venue right before everything started and hearing that still small voice say, this is just the tip of the iceberg of what I have planned. After that symphony concert, we actually went and did a brief tour in Brazil. And so I saw all of this momentum coming back to music. And then it was that still same thing that was like, go work. And it was like, you've got to be kidding me. Like, you're you're double killing the dream. so I work at a level one trauma center, so you literally get everything that's too sick for every other hospital around. All of the car accidents, all of the violent crimes, and all of the heart attacks, all of the strokes. In ER trauma, were there for the worst moments in people's lives. So when I pick up a guitar, my head is filled with these stories, conversations I've had with people on their deathbeds. Like, I've asked people, you know, are you at peace? And just being able to hash out life in between this seemingly chaotic environment having my value connected to music skewed some of the things I like would would use it for I think the music has really changed in that I'm not trying to prove anything anymore I think I'm content and at the same time I'm following like a purpose for it and and my thought is I can't believe you had this in mind. When I was sitting at my desk and hearing that still small voice of God, like, I have something else for you. Like the dream part. It's almost like I don't need to have one. I've seen all of these things happen in the absence of my dream. So, what would be the point? It's almost like my dream would be a limiting factor.
0: year was 1927. It was a year that T.S. Eliot might as well have circled on his calendar because it was a year of significant change in his life. That was the year that T.S. Eliot became a Christian, made the choice to follow Jesus, was baptized and confirmed in the Anglican Church in the UK. The news hit rather hard Eliot had participated in a group called the Bloomsbury Group. The Bloomsbury Group was a group of intellectuals, of philosophers, of artists, of writers that gathered together to talk about their work, to talk about trends in society, to view their art. When the news spread that one of those who had participated with them had confessed faith in Christ, it was difficult for them to take. In fact, the de facto head of the Bloomsbury Group, a woman who would write a letter, an important letter, a woman named Virginia Woolf wrote out to the others and reached out and told them, this is news that is tough to take. I want to read you part of the letter that Virginia Woolf wrote to her peers. I have had, she wrote, a most shameful and distressing interview with dear Tom Elliott who may be called dead to us all from this day forward. He has become a believer in God and immortality, and he goes to church. I was shocked. A corpse would seem more credible than he is. I mean, there's something obscene in a living person sitting by the fire and believing in God. Listen to that last line. There's something obscene about a living person sitting by the fire and believing in God. Those words might as well have been lifted out of our psalm for this week, Psalm 12. They reflect exactly the sentiment that the psalmist was writing about. The psalmist looking around in the culture around him and the world of his day made some astute observations. And when it came to putting pen to paper with this psalm, wrote about those observations. I'll confess to you, and maybe you'll have the same reaction. When I read the opening verses to this psalm, I wondered, were these written 3,000 years ago or were these written last week? Written about the ancient world are written about our world. I want to read those to you. Psalm 12. I want to begin with the first four verses. And just ask yourself, does this resonate in any way with us? Does this echo the tenor of our times? Psalm 12, verse 1. Help, Lord, for no one is faithful anymore. Those who are loyal have vanished from the human race. Everyone lies to their neighbor. They flatter with their lips, but harbor deception in their hearts. May the Lord silence all flattering lips and every boastful tongue. Those who say, By our tongues we will prevail. Our own lips will defend us. Who is Lord over us? Arrogant boasts. And the psalmist writes, reflecting on that, No one is faithful anymore. The loyal have vanished from the human race. Writing about then or about now. And it's not just those opening lines. Those opening lines are paralleled at the end of the psalm. So now I want to read to you the last two verses of the psalm, Psalm 12, verses 7 and 8, that say this, You, Lord, will keep the needy safe and will protect us forever from the wicked, who freely strut about while depravity is honored by the human race. That's quite a lie. Depravity is honored by the human race. You might say, well, does that truly exist? Maybe we need to confirm that. And so we sit down at the computer, the two of us together, and we start clicking on the news sites, and we start taking note of the headlines. Depravity, the psalm said, is honored by the human race. And we start taking note of what happens around us. Disloyalty on every hand to God, to country, to one another, to our most sacred and deep and most cherished vows. Disloyalty to the ones we've pledged to serve. To protect depravity. By the time we're done clicking around on the internet, we can confirm with sadness. Yes, Psalmist was right. No doubt that condition exists. But that's not what interests me today. We know that. What interests me is a different question. We here at Camp Meeting are in a series entitled Faithful, Living True. Last week we began by noting that faithfulness begins in the heart of God. That it starts with Him. Our faithfulness is response to what God has done. But this week I have a different question. Not where does it begin. This week my question is, why does it matter? Why does it matter? that God might wish to have faithful people. Why does it matter how we live, what we do, whether or not we just go along with the tides of the time? Now, the psalmist will give us a clue to that in speaking about God. The verses at the heart of the psalm underline the fact of a faithful God, a God whose word is his bond, A God who will stand up and step up to deliver those who suffer. Psalm 12, verses 5 and 6, describes what God will do in a faithless generation. Because the poor are plundered and the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord, I will protect them from those who malign them. The word of the Lord is flaws, flawless, it says. Some versions render that. The word of the Lord is pure. The sense in the context is that the word of the Lord is faithful. He will ultimately be faithful to his people. Faithful. But I come back again to that question. Why do we matter? We want to depend on God's faithfulness, yes. But why does it matter whether or not we are faithful. After all, faithfulness is profoundly difficult. Notice what happened then. Notice what happens now. It's as though a mighty river called culture rushes along. It's current. It's swift current moving everybody in one direction. We are all caught up in that in some way. To be faithful is to somehow turn the other way and swim against the current. very hard. So we need to know why it matters. Well, may I suggest to you that God's answer to times of darkness is people of light. You and I are God's answer to times of darkness. As difficult as it may be to swim against the current, when the people who are the light experience a power of failure, the darkness deepens. When those who are called to be like cities on a hill, lighting the earth, go dark, suddenly the darkness becomes palpable. It matters, it matters, because God wants to shine his light through us. So let's talk a bit about that. Let's talk a bit about how difficult it is to be faithful in difficult times, to move against the grain, to swim against the current, and why that might be so difficult. In order to talk about that, I want to talk to you about basketball. About basketball. In fact, Malcolm Gladwell, in his podcast, Revisionist History, has an episode in the first season called The Big Man Can't Shoot. Gladwell focuses on a game. Some say it was the greatest game played in NBA history. March 2, 1963, Hershey, Pennsylvania. The Philadelphia Warriors are playing the New York Knicks. The Philadelphia Warriors have a player by the name of Wilt Chamberlain. Wilt Chamberlain is 7 feet 1 inch tall, weighs about 275 pounds, But Will Chamberlain isn't just large. He is agile. Some describe him as having the moves of a ballerina at that size. An exceptional basketball player. And on that night in Hershey, Pennsylvania, he proves it once and for all. Because on that night in Hershey, Pennsylvania, playing against the New York Knicks, Will Chamberlain scores 100 points. 100 points. Many teams, entire teams, don't make it to that. But he himself scored 100 points. But that's not what really distinguishes the game. As remarkable a feat as that is, a feat that almost certainly will never be duplicated, it's something else that Chamberlain did that night that draws our attention to today, as we take note of why it's important to be faithful and why it's so difficult to swim against the current. It was what happened at the free throw line. Now, for those of you who may not be basketball aficionados, I have, to, I have to explain just a little bit. If you happen to be playing in the game and somebody fouls you, somebody whacks you on the arm, somebody pushes you, somebody trips you, the ref will blow the whistle, the teams will line up in the key and you will get to stand here at the free throw line. You'll get to stand here at the free throw line while everybody else stands around, and you'll get to take free throw shots. Now, for some reason, big men in the NBA are terrible free throw shooters. For some reason, most of them just can't seem to put the ball in the basket from the free throw line. Oh, they can put it in from down there, but not from the free throw line. And Wilt was no exception. In fact, that season, he was shooting about 40%, which means that for every 10 times that he lined up at the free throw line to shoot, he missed six of his shots. Not good. In that kind of world, people can just keep fouling him, fouling him, and, and they'll end up doing better that way. But that night in Hershey, Pennsylvania, Wilt Chamberlain made 28 of 32 free throws. 87.5 percent. Without which he would never have scored hundred points. So the question becomes, why did he do so well? I want some help from someone in kind of unpacking this and so I want to ask my friend and our young adult pastor Tyler Stewart to join me here on the platform. Uh, Tyler, I think, thinks he's a basketball player, so have him come up, and I'm having other friends gather around just in case, Tyler, you miss. They'll, they'll chase it down. They'll protect the people and the, and the That's things. That's a lot of people, Randy. <laughs> That's, <laughs> That's a lot of people. You think
2: I'm a really bad shot. But...
0: <laughs> We've we wanted to cover all the bases. <laughs> mm-hmm. So here's the deal, Tyler. You're playing in a game. You're, I've seen you drive down the lane, and it's a flash. So you're okay. you're driving down the lane, and you're coming through the lane. As you go by, I'm trying to get the ball. I whack you on the arm. The whistle blows. Ref lines us up. Teams line up here, and here you are at the free throw line. Okay. Two free throws. Okay. Let me. Uh... Yeah. You, yeah. You better get ready. <laughs> yeah, here. <I> better, uh... <laughs> All right. All right. So now we're we're gonna we're gonna watch and see. Don't don't be stressed that your entire congregation is watching you. Okay. Just, just,
2: Focus, focus. I, I on think I have the support of my church, right? That's right. <laughs> All right. All right, here we go. <laughs> okay, okay. Now that feels like pressure, but now, now you uh, really feel pressure. <laughs> All right, this doesn't look regulation, but uh, we'll keep well, we'll that in mind. we'll pretend it is. If I miss, then we'll know.
0: <laughs> oh! <laughs> All right, that's one. Okay. So you're 100%. That's okay. the first one. All, all right. right, you got a second shot. All right. Now.
2: That does look like regulation, actually. <laughs> there right, we
0: go.
2: Oh. Aye.
0: Well, 50%. 50%, yeah. all right? You're yeah. ahead of where Will was. 50%. But that night, he was 87.5%. Something happened. Something <laughs> changed. Uh-huh. I want to tell you what it was. What Will did that night was rather than shooting as any self-respecting NBA <laughs> or college or high school or elementary player would shoot overhead, Wilt shot underhanded. <laughs> he did what's called granny shots. <laughs> and he right. did that and made 87.5% of his free throws. Okay. So you're in a game. You're driving down the lane. You get whacked, but this time it goes in, so you get one additional All right. shot. All right. Only this time, You're going to shoot Granny Shot. (laughs) Do you shoot this way? No, I do not, sir. (laughs) No, I do not. All right. All right. right. No pressure. (laughs) (laughs) Oh! Very good. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Now, Don't clap. He missed it. <laughs>
2: That's how supportive they are. Okay, your... <laughs> They're very
0: supportive. Now, let me ask you a question. Wilt made shot after shot after shot that way. So let me ask you, if you were in a game and you knew that shooting this way, you would make more than twice as many shots as you would shooting this way, would you do it? <laughs>
2: Well, that's tough, because I've told you I'm kind of competitive to my core, but I thought maybe a third option would be I'd get back in the gym and find a way to shoot 87% the proper way. (laughs) That's probably what I would do. All right, but for
0: today, you can't do that. Would would you shoot
2: this way? (laughs) No, sir, I would not. I am no one's grandmother, so I will not be shooting granny style.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So you wouldn't do it. Well, very
2: interesting. Yeah, now, my question to you, and I have a request, but... My question to you would be, would you shoot granny style?
0: (laughs) (laughs) No way I would shoot that way. (laughs) I don't want to look like a fool out there. (laughs) Okay, all right, I
2: believe you. But now I had a request, I thought, Randy. I want to see you stand right over here underneath the hoop. And uh, matter of fact, why don't you just face them over there that way, okay? Just hang out right there. (laughs) And uh, I've always kind of had this dream of... Dunking on my senior pastor. So here we go. <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs>
1: no? <laughs> Get this ball away from me while I can.
0: <laughs> Thank you, Tyler, yeah, very yeah, much. Sure, I no appreciate problem. your help. <laughs> Thanks to y'all for protecting us. Now I want you to listen to that. Tyler says, and honestly I agree with him, that he would not shoot this way, even if he made twice as many shots. Chamberlain shot that way that night, made 87.5% of his free throws, and following that game went back to shooting overhand. And his percentage plummeted down to where it was before. The question becomes why? That's what Malcolm Gladwell deals with in his podcast. Why? Knowing what works, knowing what's best, why would he return to what he had been doing before that didn't work? The answer is actually quite simple. Because nobody does it that way. Nobody. No self-respect. Well, wait a minute. There was one. During the era when Chamberlain played, there was a player by the name of Rick Barry. Rick Barry shot all of his free throws underhanded. Now, just to get a sense of how well he did, consider this. They say he's the best basketball player on the planet, a player named LeBron James. In an average season, shooting free throws the way they're meant to be shot, he misses somewhere in the range of 150 free throws through the season. Rick Barry had a season when he missed 10 free throws. He had another season when he missed nine free throws. In fact, Rick Barry talked to different NBA players. He would later say, years later, he said, I talked to Shaquille O'Neal, who was a horrendous free throw shooter. I talked to him and I said, Shaquille, I can teach you how to do it. You'll make most of your shots. You know what Shaquille responded? He said, I wouldn't shoot underhanded if I made zero shots the other way. No way I would do that. Absolutely not. Any self-respecting basketball player, according to all the ones who play, doesn't shoot that way. It's not the way it's to be done. So why not? Well, Gladwell explores some of the sociological reasons for that and goes to the theory of a sociologist by the name of Mark Grenevetter. Mark Grenevetter is an eminent sociologist and developed a theory of why people do things that are out of character or that are not in their best interest. It was called the threshold model of collective behavior. Grenevetter says we have a certain threshold that we have to reach in order to do something that would be different, that would be out of character, or maybe that would even be in our best interest. Here's what a threshold is. Before Granovetter came along, a belief was thought to be what formed people's behavior. A belief is internal. Granovetter said, no, it's what's external. A threshold is how many people have to be doing a behavior before you finally will join in. How many people have to be doing it before you will join in? We, for a long time, had a term we use for that. The more common term is the term peer pressure. Peer pressure. In all kinds of situations, we so quickly give in to peer pressure. In fact, I want to give you a visual of what Granovetter is talking about, about how peer pressure can affect us. And I want to give you that visual drawn from the archives decades ago of a television program called Candid Camera. Alan Funt, the developer, the host of Candid Camera, in this particular scenario is talking about people on an elevator, and I want you to observe how peer pressure affects us. Watch.
3: The gentleman in the elevator now is a candid star. These folks who are entering, the man with the white shirt, the lady with the trench coat, and subsequently one other member of our staff will face the rear. And you'll see how this man in the trench coat (laughs) tries to maintain his individuality, but little by little, He looks at his watch, but he's really making an excuse for turning just a little bit more (laughs) to the wall. Now we'll try it once again. Here's the candid subject. Here comes the candid camera staff, three of them at least. And uh, this man has apparently been in groups before. (laughs) A fella with his hat on in the elevator.
2: <laughs>
3: First he makes a full turn to the rear and Charlie closes the door. A moment later, mm-hmm. we'll open the door. Everybody's changed positions.
1: <laughs>
3: <laughs> <laughs> now we'll see if we can use see if we can use group pressure for some good. Now, in a moment, on Charlie's signal, everybody turns forward. <laughs> Notice, they take off their hats. <laughs> and now, do you think we could reverse the procedure? Watch.
0: As you watch the facial expressions of that young man in the elevator, he clearly has no idea what he's doing. He's just simply mimicking the behavior of those around him. In other words, his threshold is very high. When people do things, he's going to join in, and he's going to do exactly what it is that they're doing. Now, here's the question. What does Psalm 12, Wilt Chamberlain, basketball, Mark Grenovator, and thresholds, And our question, why does it matter to be faithful? What do all of those things have in common? What is it that draws them all together? Well, it's simply this. The psalmist said that in his world, and I suspect that we would all confess in our world, the current was moving very swiftly in one direction. It was clear that in society, loyalty, faithfulness, decorum, decency were disappearing. And he understood that there was a tendency for the people of God to fall into line with that and to simply become whirling robots on an elevator. Basketball players that wouldn't shoot the way that worked best because no one else is doing it. And so the psalmist writes writes to God's people. Now, I want, to, I want you to listen to some words from Wilt Chamberlain describing how he related to this reality, what had happened to him, how his shooting percentage went way up and then dropped back down. He said this in his autobiography. I felt silly, he wrote, like a sissy shooting underhanded. I know I was wrong. I know some of the best foul shooters in history shot that way. Even now, the best one in the NBA shoots underhanded. I just couldn't do it. Curious what he says. I know I was wrong. Understand what he means by that. What he is essentially saying in basketball, the goal is to score as many points as possible. And so whatever you can do to increase the probability that you're going to score more points is the right thing to do. So I understand that in not doing that, I was doing the wrong thing. But he says, I just couldn't do it. I felt foolish, out of step out of line. So I would rather fail than look that way. That's a sobering thought. Listen to what two Old Testament scholars Robert Hubbard and Robert Johnston say in their comments on this Psalm. They write this, Believers today often feel the pressures of taking a minority and unpopular position in society. Psalm 12 assures us this is no new problem and that God's people have survived nonetheless. In response, Yahweh speaks and promises to intervene. Believers today, they say, often feel pressure. Am I willing to stand and be faithful? It will be out of harmony, out of tune with the music of the society. Now, notice that the psalm is specifically talking about the way people speak to one another. I don't know if you've noticed. The tenor and the climate of our public conversation is not good. All it takes is to listen, to go online, to go to your Twitter feed, to go on Facebook, Instagram, everywhere the voices are strident and angry and accusing and putting one another down and saying the most vile and egregious things to each other. That's the current of the day. The question for us is, are we willing to shoot underhanded? Are we willing to step out of that And be faithful to the call of God to his people. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called children of God. A soft answer turns away wrath. When you speak, says Paul in Ephesians 4, don't speak so as to tear people down, but as to build people up. That's the call of God to faithfulness. Paul writes to the Ephesians and says, Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, along with the brawling and slander and every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as Christ in God has forgiven you. That's faithfulness to God. But that is way out of step with our culture. That's way out of step with the way everyone plays the game. So we have a question to answer. Why does it matter to be faithful? It matters for many reasons. It matters because we have a God who loves us, who has chosen us to be his own, whose heart is wounded when we simply turn and turn and turn in the elevator. Following the culture, We have a God who has promised faithfulness to us and asks faithfulness from us. We have a God who calls us to discipleship. But in addition to that, we have fellow disciples, brothers and sisters around us who will take courage from us if we stand. If there's just one more or two more, or ten more, suddenly courage is ignited in the hearts of others. That's why faithfulness matters. We support and sustain one another in the journey with Jesus. And so we stand, we stand at the free throw line. We stand there, we're up to do it. We know what will not work as well, and we know what will work better. The question is, are we willing to be out of step with the culture and make the choice in a Godward direction? We saw the story earlier. The story of someone who sensed God tapping him on the shoulder. Tad Warku. Tad worku who had a bright, and lucrative career ahead of him in the music world. That worker who felt that tap on the shoulder, the tender nudging of the Spirit, the guiding hand of Jesus, and who would later say, by the time I was done following that, I suddenly realized I was alone. Friends and family weren't there. I was having to make these choices on my own which is the very place that many of us revert to the way everybody's doing it. But he stayed the course. He helps heal broken bodies now, writes songs about them as the song he's about to sing was written. Love Remains. Written growing out of a very difficult, patient situation. So he followed the tapping. Jesus is tapping on your shoulder today. I don't know where it is in your life and world, but it's somewhere. It could be somewhere at work, someone with whom you're tempted to be unfaithful. It could be the kind of way you're ready to speak to someone else and to put them in their place and put them down. It could be in the way you use your money, your finances. Whether or not you're a truth teller. Whether or not you share with others the abundant blessings that God has given you. I don't know where it is. But I do know that somewhere in your life you stand at the free throw line. As you stand there deciding, what am I going to do? I have a prayer for you. This is my prayer for you. Oh, may all who come behind us find us faithful. May the fire of our devotion light their way. Might the love we've experienced from Jesus and can share with others be what guides every decision. Oh, may all who come behind us find us faithful.